Welcome once again to Christ and Cthulhu. I am your host, C.L. Fuquay, and today we will be doing a read-through of H.P. Lovecraft's short story, The Other Gods. Uh, as I mentioned in the previous episode, this is closely connected with the other short story we did a read-through of, Cats of Ulthar. So be sure and stick around to the end of the episode, because uh, unlike with Cats of Ulthar, where I just did a straight read-through, with this one, I would like to do a little bit of a dive on the philosophical and spiritual uh, undertones that are in this story, because I think they are prevalent, um, and they point to his uh, later stories, such as the Cthulhu Mythos stories. Uh, but before we do that, let me go ahead and do a, read a little intro paragraph to this story um, that is in the H.P. Lovecraft Complete Fiction from Barnes & Noble's. Uh, it says here, The Other Gods, the last of the explicitly Dunsanian tales of Lovecraft's early period, The Other Gods was written on August 14th, 1921. It is the one story that attempts to imitate the cosmicism that is at the heart of Dunsany's early work, especially in The Gods of Pagana, which is 1905, and Time and the Gods, 1906. Lovecraft has deliberately established links with his previous Dunsanian tales with such mentions as the Nicotic Manuscripts from Polaris, Ulthar, and the character Atal from the Cats of Ulthar, and the like. It could be argued that his citation of other gods who lurk behind the mild gods of Earth anticipates the later Cthulhu mythos. The story was first published in The Fantasy Fan in November 1933. So there you go. It even says here in this opening paragraph that it, it may be pointing ahead to what he was working on. Uh, when I get into uh, some of the background of his own um, spiritual life, I think you'll see that play out not only in his fiction, but also in his actual personal spiritual life. So let's go ahead and get started with this story. The Other Gods by H.P. Lovecraft Atop the tallest of Earth's peaks dwell the gods of Earth, and suffer no man to tell that he hath looked upon them. Lesser peaks they once inhabited, but ever the men from the plains would scale the slopes of rock and snow, driving the gods to higher and higher mountains till now only the last remains. When they left their older peaks, they took with them all signs of themselves, save once, it is said. When they left a carven image on the face of the mountain, which they called Negranic. But now they have betaken themselves to unknown Kadath, in the cold waste where no man treads, and are grown stern, having no higher peak whereto to flee at the coming of men. They are grown stern, and where once they suffered men to displace them, they now forbid men to come, or coming, to depart. It is well for men that they know not of Kadath in the cold waste, else they would seek injudiciously to scale it. Sometimes when earth's gods are homesick, they visit in the still night the peaks where once they dwelt, and weep softly as they try to play in the olden way on remembered slopes. Men have felt the tears of the gods on white cap the rye, though they have thought it rain, and have heard the sighs of the gods in the plaintive dawn winds of Lyrion, in cloud ships the gods are wont to travel, and wise cotters have legends that keep them from certain high peaks at night when it is cloudy, 
for the gods are not lenient as of old. In Ulthar, which lies beyond the river Sky, once dwelt an old man avid to behold the gods of Earth, a man deeply learned in the seven cryptical books of Hassan, and familiar with the necotic manuscripts of distant and frozen Lomar. His name was Barzai the Wise, and the villagers tell of how he went up a mountain on the night of the strange eclipse. Barzai knew so much of the gods that he could tell of their comings and goings, and guessed so many of their secrets that he was deemed half a god himself. It was he who wisely advised the Burgesses of Ulthar when they passed the remarkable law against the slaying of cats, and who first told the young priest at all where it is that black cats go at midnight on St. John's Eve. Barzai was learned in the lore of Earth's gods, and had gained a desire to look upon their faces. He believed that his great secret knowledge of gods could shield him from their wrath, so resolved to go up to the summit of high and rocky Hathig Claw on a night when he knew the gods would be there. Hathig Claw is far in the stony desert beyond Hathig, for which it is named, and rises like a rock statue in a silent temple. Around its peak the mists play always mournfully, for mists are the memories of the gods, and the gods loved Hathig Claw when they dwelt upon it in the old days. Often the gods of earth visit Hathig Claw in their ships of cloud, casting pale vapors over the slopes as they dance reminiscently on the summit under the clear moon. The villagers of Hathig say it is ill to climb Hathig Claw at any time, and deadly to climb it by night when the pale vapors hide the summit and the moon. But Barzai heeded them not when he came from neighboring Ulthar with the young priest Atal, who was his disciple. Atal was only the son of an innkeeper and was sometimes afraid, but Barzai's father had been a landgrave who dwelt in an ancient castle, so he had no common superstition in his blood, and only laughed at the fearful cotters. Barzai and Atal went out of Hathig into the stony desert despite the prayers of peasants, and talked of Earth's gods by the campfires at night. Many days they traveled, and from afar saw lofty Hathig Klob with his aureole of mournful mist. On the thirteenth day they reached the mountain's lonely base, and Atal spoke of his fears, but Barzai was old and learned and had no fears so led the way boldly up the slope that no man had scaled since the time of Sanzu, who is written of with fright in the moldy necotic manuscripts. The way was rocky and made perilous by chasms, cliffs, and falling stones. Later it grew cold and snowy, and Barzai and Atal often slipped and fell as they hewed and plodded upward with staves and axes. Finally the air grew thin, and the sky changed color, and the climbers found it so hard to breathe that they still toiled up and up, marveling at the strangeness of the scene, and thrilling at the thought of what would happen on the summit when the moon was out and the pale vapors spread around. For three days they climbed higher and higher and higher, toward the roof of the world, then they camped to wait for the clouding of the moon. For four nights no clouds came, and the moon shone down cold through the thin mournful mists around the silent pinnacle. Then, on the fifth night, which was the night of the full moon, Barzai saw some dense clouds far to the north, and stayed up with Atal to watch them draw near. Thick and majestic they sailed, slowly and deliberately onward, ranging themselves around the peak above the watchers, 
and hiding the moon and the summit from view. For a long hour the watchers gazed, whilst the vapors swirled and the screen of the clouds grew thicker and more restless. Barzai was wise in the lore of Earth's gods, and listened hard for certain sounds, but Atal felt the chill of the vapors and the awe of the night, and feared much. And when Barzai began to climb higher and beckon eagerly, it was long before Atal would follow. So thick were the vapors that the, the way was hard, and though Atal followed on at last, he could scarce see the gray shape of Barzai on the dim slope above in the clouded moonlight. Barzai forged very far ahead, and seemed, despite his age, to climb more easily than Atal, fearing not the steepness that began to grow too great for any save a strong and dauntless man, nor pausing at wide black chasms that Atal scarce could leap. And so they went up wildly over rocks and gulfs, slipping and stumbling, and sometimes awed at the vastness and horrible silence of bleak ice pinnacles and mute granite steeps. Very suddenly, Barzai went out of Atal's sight, scaling a hideous cliff that seemed to bulge outward and block the path for any climber not inspired of Earth's gods. Atal was far below, and planning what he should do when he reached the place, when curiously he noticed that the light had grown strong, as if the cloudless peaks and moonlit meeting place of the gods was very near, and as he scrambled on towards the bulging cliff and lit in sky, he felt fears more shocking than any he had known before. Then, through the high mist, he heard the voice of unseen Barzai shouting wildly in delight. I have heard the gods. I have heard Earth's gods singing in revelry on Hathigla. The voices of Earth's gods are known to Barzai the prophet. The mist are thin and the moon is bright, and I shall see the gods dancing wildly on Hathigla that they loved in youth. The wisdom of Barzai hath made him greater than Earth's gods, and against his will their spells and barriers are as naught. Barzai will behold the gods, the proud gods, the secret gods, the gods of Earth who spurn the sight of men. Atal could not hear the voices Barzai heard, but he was now so close to the bulging cliff and scanning it for footholds. Then he heard Barzai's voice grow shriller and louder, the mists are very thin, and the moon casts shadow on the slope. The voices of Earth's gods are high and wild, and they fear the coming of Barzai the Wise, who is greater than they. The moon's light flickers as Earth's gods dance against it. I shall see the dancing forms of the gods that leap and howl in the moonlight. The light is dimmer, and the gods are afraid. Whilst Barzai was shouting these things, Atal felt the spectral change in the air as if the laws of Earth were bowing to greater laws. For though the way was steeper than ever, the upward path was now grown fearsomely easy, and the bulging cliff proved scarce an obstacle when he reached it, and slid perilously up its convex face. The light of the moon had strangely failed, and as Atal plunged upward through the mist, he heard Barzai the Wise shrieking in the shadows. The moon is dark, and the gods dance in the night, there is terror in the sky, for upon the moon hath sunk an eclipse foretold in no books of men or of earth's gods. There is unknown magic on Hathiglah, for the screams of the frightened gods have turned to laughter, and the slopes of ice shoot up endlessly into the black heavens whither I am plunging. Hi, hi, at last! In the dim light I behold the gods of earth! 
and now a tall, slipping dizzily up over in inconceivable steeps, heard in the dark a loathsome laughing, mixed with such a cry as no man else ever heard, save in the phlegethon of unrelatable nightmares. A cry wherein reverberated the horror and anguish of a haunted lifetime packed into one atrocious moment. The other gods! The other gods! The gods of the outer hells that guard the feeble gods of Earth! Look away! Go back! Do not see! Do not see! The vengeance of the infinite abysses that cursed that damnable pit! Merciful gods of Earth, I am falling into the sky! And as Atal shut his eyes and stopped his ears and tried to jump downward against the frightful pool from unknown heights, there resounded on Hathig Claw that terrible peal of thunder, which awakened the good cotters of the plains, and the honest burgesses of Hathig and Nir and Ulthar, and caused them to behold through the clouds that strange eclipse of the moon, that no book ever predicted. And when the moon came out at last, Atal was safe on the lower snows of the mountain without sight of Earth's gods or of the other gods. Now it is told in the moldy Nicotic manuscripts that Sun Tzu found not but wordless ice and rock when he climbed Hathig Claw in the youth of the world. Yet when the men of Ulthar and Nir and Hathig crushed their fears and scaled that haunted steep by day in search of Barzai, the wise, they found graven in the naked stone of the summit a curious encyclopian symbol, fifty cubits wide, as if the rock had been riven by some titanic chisel. And the symbol was like to one that learned men have discerned in those frightful parts of the Nicotic manuscripts which are too ancient to be read. This they found. Barzai the wise they never found, nor could the holy priest at all ever be persuaded to pray for his soul's repose. Moreover, to this day, the people of Ulthar and Nir and Hathig fear eclipses, and pray by night when pale vapors hide the mountaintop and the moon. And above the mists on Hathig Claw, Earth's gods sometimes dance reminiscently, for they know they are safe, and love to come from unknown Kadath in ships of cloud and play in the olden way, as they did when Earth was new, and men not given to the climbing of inaccessible places. The Other Gods is a fascinating short story to me because I view it as a sort of microcosm of Lovecraft's own spiritual evolution. He is best known as a nihilist and cosmic cynic of sorts, but in his early life he fancied himself a pagan. He loved ancient Greece and its pantheon of gods. I'm going to be referencing the essay by Brandon Reynolds titled Lovecraft's Avatars, Azathoth, Nyarlathotep, Dagon, and Lovecraftian Utopias uh, throughout this following discussion because he provides wonderful insights into Lovecraft's own thought processes as a young boy leading into adulthood regarding religion. From Lovecraft's own essay, A Confession of Unfaith, he states, When about seven or eight, I was a genuine pagan, so intoxicated with the beauty of Greece that I acquired a half-sincere belief in the old gods and nature spirits. Once I firmly thought I beheld these creatures dancing under autumnal oaks, a kind of religious experience as true in its way as the subjective ecstasies of any Christian. If a Christian tell me he has felt the reality of his Jesus or Yahweh, I can reply that I have seen the hoofed pan. And he would also write in a poem from when he was around 11 years old entitled, 
to the old pagan religion. Olympian gods, how can I let ye go? And pin my faith to this new Christian creed, can I resign the deities I know, for him who on a cross for man did bleed? He seems to, as a boy and young man, simultaneously desire a return to the worship of the old pagan gods of classical Greece, yet also realize its time has passed and been usurped by this new Christian god. Yet he can't bring himself to worship this god, or as I would argue, the god presented through the lens of American experience. Brandon Reynolds in his essay argues that the god Dagon, which is first presented in the short story Dagon and later referenced heavily in Shadow over Innsmouth, is the pagan longing of Lovecraft coming out, but as we see in other stories, the outer gods take center stage, imposing over this pagan utopia a nihilistic dystopia. A dystopia which sees the annihilation of mankind as the inevitable solution. Whether it's Cthulhu's revival, the flying polyps return, Nyarlathotep finally allowing the other gods to enter our reality, or Azathoth simply waking up. We see this spiritual drama play out magnificently and cryptically in the other gods. Barzai the Wise can be construed as Lovecraft, but I think it's more accurately a portrayal of Lovecraft's young naivety, beholding the dark reality and being conquered by it. Barzai climbs pompously up the mountain to see Earth's gods and behold their beauty. He in fact claims to have seen them, but then the other gods appear the ones who guard the feeble gods of earth, and he yells for his apprentice to turn back and not look at them. This is to my mind an illusion of looking into the abyss and not being able to unsee it. The worst part of nihilism, like any lie, is that there is an element of truth to it. Nihilism shows that every other worldview is ultimately just a warm-up for itself. They're dancing around its own truth claim. Whether it's liberalism, progressivism, fascism, positivism, or Marxism, it's all just circling the drain of nihilism. In his excellent short work, Nihilism, Father Seraphim Rose expounds on this brilliantly in his introduction. Here he states, To one who gropes in this darkness there is but one path, if he will not be healed of his blindness, and that is to seek some light amidst the darkness here below. Many run to the flickering candle of common sense and conventional life and accept, because one must get along somehow, the current options of the social and intellectual circles to which they belong. But many others, finding this light too dim, flock to the magic lanterns that project beguiling, multicolored views that are, if nothing else, distracting. They become devotees of this or the other political or religious or artistic current that the spirit of the age has thrown into fashion. In fact, no one lives but by the light of some revelation, be it a true or a false one, whether it serve to enlighten or obscure. He who will not live by the Christian revelation must live by a false revelation, and all false revelations lead to the abyss. Paganism is one of these false revelations, and Earth's gods are revealed to be the meager pets of what we can assume are Azathoth, Yogsathoth, Shub-Nigurath, and Nyarlathotep. They pull him up in inversion as he proclaims he is falling into the sky. I believe poor Barzai falls ultimately to the center of all chaos, to Azathoth itself. A fate worse than death, and one that Azal cannot bring himself to even bother trying to alter by praying for his repose. Azal, who we first saw in Cats of Ulthar as a boy, is now a priest in The Other Gods, and the next time we see him is in Lovecraft's lengthy and grand-scale fantasy work Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. 
Here he is greatly aged and advises our main character of that story in his quest. It was nice to see the continuity of characters like Atal and others throughout Lovecraft's stories. Whether intentional or not, he had a brilliant way of using side characters or offhand references to locations and objects and giving them major or leading roles in later stories, which gives the mythos the feeling of an actual world. I think that's all we'll say about the other gods for today. Thank you for sticking around and please consider sharing the podcast if you enjoy it to boost the listenership. Also, leave a good review on Apple Podcasts if you listen there. For those who are unawares, I myself like to write short stories and poetry in my spare time when I'm feeling particularly inspired. I'm nowhere close to the talent of Lovecraft or folks who orbited him, but it's a passion nonetheless. I'm thinking of sharing some of my own stories through spoken readings, so be looking for those standalone episodes to come. For the written versions of my works, just visit my WordPress at clfuquay.com. That's C as in cats, L as in Lovecraft, F as in fungi, uqua.com. I am also thinking of including guests to have conversations with regarding Lovecraft, whether from pure fan perspectives or maybe analyzation and interpretations. So stay tuned, we're not going anywhere. Check in on the Christ and Cthulhu Instagram page to stay up to date on the news. The music for this podcast was provided by Graham Plowman and Crowd Chamber. You can find Graham Plowman at GrahamPlowman.com, Facebook, YouTube, and iTunes. And you can find Cryo Chamber at Facebook, YouTube, and iTunes, and Bandcamp at Cryo Chamber Music. As always, I've been your host, C.L. Fuquay, and until next time, remember, that is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange aeons, even death may die. <laughs>